Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah. Welcome to our program, a study in the book of Ezekiel. We've entitled it The Visions of Ezekiel. And this is the first session that we're going to go through chapter one here and look at the very first vision that Ezekiel had. Before I start, let me just offer this to you. Most Bible students and Bible teachers struggle with when a prophet sees a vision. They're always trying to read in some kind of interpretation as to what it is, as opposed to understanding this is what the prophet experienced. For purposes of this study, I want us to focus on what Ezekiel is experiencing, what he's recounting for us. Now, obviously, he wrote this after these events took place. So he's recounting to us what was it that he experienced, and we'll get into it a little bit. We'll get into the detail, and we'll see what this turns out to be. If you'll recall, I told you in the introduction that most of the rabbis don't want to teach this book to the Jewish people. There's too many controversial issues. We'll get into some of those details as what it's, so they tend to avoid it. By the way, Christian teachers, they have a tendency to take the imagery here and turn it into all kinds of things, and rather than miss the whole message of what God called Ezekiel to do, we're going to try to stay true to what God said to Ezekiel and what Ezekiel saw and what what he did for it. So with that minor introduction, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Let me begin to read for you. And he's going to have this first experience. He's going to see this vision. Now, it came about in the 13th year on the first day of the fourth month while I was by the river Chabar. Among the exiles, the heavens were open, and I saw the vision of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Yahakoyah, I have difficulty pronouncing this name, Yahoyakim's exile. Before we go any further, let's just make sure we understand. Ezekiel is in Babylon. He was one of the first captives that was taken by the Babylonians. And part of the reason he was taken was because at the time he was 25 years old. He was in training to be a priest. This vision is now coming to him in his 30th year. He is now qualified to be a priest of Israel. When the Babylonians first attacked Israel, they didn't destroy the temple. They just shut the temple down. They took all the priests away. They took some of the things that belonged in the temple. They took those away. Their idea was to attack Israel and take away the national identity of Israel being their temple in Jerusalem and the priesthood and all of that and the leadership of the nation so that the rest of the people and the rest of the nation would capitulate and just agree to cooperate with the Babylonians. They didn't come there to just absolutely destroy everything. They specifically were trying to enslave the people but let them stay in the nation, but they had taken captive all the leadership of Israel. Ezekiel is one of those young men that was going to be a priest that he was taken with the initial captives. So he's recounting this happened on the day I turned 30 years old and I was now qualified to be a priest. So that's one of the noteworthy things that we want to take of this. Verse 3, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, see the priest, the son of Abuzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar, and there the hand of the Lord came up on him. And I looked, and behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Now, have you ever seen an awesome storm? when it begins to approach and say there's lightning associated with no whirlwind and outflow of wind and so forth, it gets your attention. And he's looking up at this giant storm that is coming toward him. 
in the sky, and it's got light in it. It's illuminating. I mean, it's commanding his attention. Verse 5, and within it, there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. So the first thing he's able to distinguish in the clouds, and as this thing is approaching, is he refers to four living beings. Now, they're not humans, but they kind of look like humans. And in fact, in the original language here, Ezekiel uses the term, the likeness of. In other words, it is an imagery that was like something I know to be. And here's what he recounts for us that he saw out of these four living beings. And their appearance had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings, and their legs were straight, and their feet were like calves' hooves, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands, and as for the faces and the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another, their faces did not turn when they moved, and they each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man, all four had the face of a lion on the right, and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, their wings were spread out above each of them, and were two touching another and two wings, their bodies. Now, before I go any further, let's see if we can kind of in our mind's eye, let's recount, what did Ezekiel say? So let's take one of these living creatures, and here's basically what he said about it. He said it has a human form. In other words, there's head, torso, arms, feet. In other words, it has a human form. However, it has four wings. Some of the wings are out this way, Okay, and then the other pair of wings are in front covering to protect, and underneath the wings are arms that come out in this. So two, and he says that the the four living creatures, these wings touch each other. They they form kind of a wall. Let me cut to the chase a little bit here. These creatures somehow provide defense to what is behind them and above them, and we'll learn more about what that is. But here's the imagery. So we've got the wings, so forth. But what about the four faces? It turns out, they don't say it directly, but the four faces means this. They have four heads. The first head is like that of a man, a lion to the right, ox here. And then it says there's an eagle. And it's almost like the eagle is in the back, but perched up above where he could see it. Now, a lot of people... A lot of teachers have tried to give some kind of spiritual interpretation to these creatures as to why they have a human face, why the face of a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And if you were to go to different commentaries, Christian and Jewish commentaries, they're going to try to explain the following. Somehow these creatures, these composite creatures, they're definitely not human. Do we dare use the word angel? No, because they're very unique. They've been created by God for a very specific purpose, and they have the qualities of being a perfect composite entity. Some have suggested that the human face is a reflection of intelligence. The lion is somehow a reflection of sovereignty. The ox is that of diligence and strength. The eagle is that about agility and foresight. And each of the qualities of these, that's where they come up with. In other words, they say, what do we understand a human to have as a quality? What do we understand a lion to have as a quality, or an ox, or an eagle? Now, before I go any further, let me just tell you, this idea of composite figures, 
made up of human and animal parts is a very common thing in this world. A lot of us don't quite recognize it, but the truth is that in the ancients, and archaeologists have found lots of evidence of this, this used to be a very common thing in the ancients to have particular things. Let me point one out to you that I'm sure that you've seen before. There's a creature that is a composite of a man and a lion, and it's called a griffin. And it's called a griffin because it has wings on the side of the lion. So it's a winged lion with the head of a man. That's called a griffin. And there's a very famous statues of this that was found in Persia, archaeologically found. They're in museums. And by the way, their legs go straight down. And as it describes here, they're like the legs of an oxen straight. And they have hooves like that of an ox, you know, the split hoof. So you have this creature that is part animal and the head and the face of a man, the, the human form to it. Very common in archaeologists to find things like this, these composite creatures. In fact, some critics of the Bible have said that really what Ezekiel was doing is he was just recounting some of this stuff that was going on. May I suggest a whole nother explanation? You know, God has used a lot of interesting things like this to get our attention, to hold our attention as a part of it. And that's what he's doing with Ezekiel. He is getting his attention. He is looking at something he's never seen before, and he knows it's powerful, and he knows there's something more coming with it. And rather than trying to interpret, well, what are these living creatures? He's acknowledging what they are, how powerful they are, how large they are, what they appear to be, and there's four of them. And then he begins to recount how they move that when they're moving, their wings are up, but when they're standing still, their wings come down and they stand erect. And they are guarding, they're protecting something that's right behind them and right above them. And as we read a little bit further here, it says the following. Let me start with verse 12. And each went straight forward wherever the spirit was about to go, and they would go without turning as they went. And in the midst of the living things, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright and the lightning was flashing from the fire. So not only do we see the imagery here, but how about lightning bolts are flying back and forth? I mean, this is a, a dazzling thing that he is seeing. Verse 14, and the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Now, as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling burl, and all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if the wheel were within another. Wherever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. Let me say this is what he saw. He saw them facing, and he didn't see them do this. He saw when they turned, they just went like that. They went forward, they went backwards, they turned. They could go any direction they wanted to, but they maintained this form for it. That's what he's describing for us. In other words, it's not like this. It's straight forward and sideways and so forth. Verse 18, as for their rims, they were lofty and awesome, and the rings of all four of them were full of eyes around about. And whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. When the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose, closed beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever they went, 
these went, and whenever they stood still, these stood still, and whenever they rose from the earth, the wheels rose beside them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. There's some people who've tried to come up with the imagery of this, and the best explanation I've heard for this goes like this. We have the living creatures here, and we have a wheel here, and a wheel behind, and a wheel here. They're underneath them. So that when they move, why those wheels move this way, and when they go forward, these wheels go this way. And these wheels, according to the understanding here, are massive. These are giant wheels. I think if we were to see it to give you an explanation of it, let's say that you had a train locomotive. These wheels would be bigger than a train locomotive. They were massive. And that's what he's trying to take note of, how big these wheels were. Because these wheels apparently are the mobility that supports what's up above. And we're getting ready to hear that part about what's up above. So let me begin verse 22. Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse like the awesome gleam of crystal extended over their heads. And under the expanse of their wings was stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one had two wings covering his body and one side on the other. I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an angry camp. And whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings." And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. And whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse, there was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and support something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. And as the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. So before we go any further, let's examine again, what did Ezekiel see? We believe Ezekiel saw what is referred to as the fiery chariot of God. It is, in the Hebrew, it's called the Merkabah. And the Merkabah is the fiery chariot. This is when God moves around. Apparently, this is how he moves. This is what you would see as God comes to you or goes somewhere. And so this is, this is what you're going to see. So when God moves around, it's, it's sitting on this chariot. Do you remember Elijah? Swing low, sweet chariot. Well, we think that Elijah saw this same thing and was picked up from the earth. Elijah never suffered physical death. He went to be with the Lord and that he got a ride, you know, on this fiery chariot and took him up to be in the presence of the Lord. If you go to the book of Isaiah and you start comparing the vision that Isaiah saw when he started his ministry, you go to chapter six of Isaiah and he tells you about the angels that were up above the throne of God. In other words, we have the throne of God and up above over the top of the throne are a set of seraphim. There's four seraphim angels. So let's explain that a little bit. Seraphim specifically have six wings. They have wings that they fly, once they cover their body, and then other ones they cover their feet. So when Isaiah saw them, he saw these angels 
with their wings out flying. He saw a pair of wings covering their body and a pair of wings covering their feet. And they were above the throne of God and they're in unison. They're all crying out, holy, holy is the Lord, Lord God Almighty. And this is a perpetual thing that is happening over the top of the throne of God. These are the seraphim. Now, if you go to the throne seat of the throne, and we get this with the Ark of the Covenant, there's cherubim. Now, cherubim are angels with four wings, not six, four wings. And part of the living creatures is part of the description of the cherubim. They have four wings. The cherubim have four wings. But there's two cherubim that sit on top of what's called the mercy seat, the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. And they were actually formed by Moses as gold ones to try to illustrate what was there. These cherubims face each other on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, one looking at each other like this. And they have four wings. Two of their wings are lifted up like this. And the other two is covering, extending forward and covering. Now, what is formed by the wings of the cherubim is this expanse, this space in which we understand God's presence. That's his mercy seat. That's what he, he sits on the wings of these angels. He doesn't sit on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. He sits up in the expanse up into that place where the, that is at. And if you go to further to the book of John, and specifically the book of Revelation, where you see chapter 4 and 5, he had a vision of seeing the throne of God. Only his vision, not looking from the top like Isaiah or Ezekiel up from the bottom, instead he looked straight on. And he was able to see the throne of the area where the throne was at, where the lamb is at. And one of the things that he said that was before the throne was an altar. And surrounding that altar around were 24 elders. And so you have this imagery of this is what it looks like to be at the throne of God. Now, I'm not going to get so much into Revelation as what it is or Isaiah or Ezekiel, but now I want to step back and tell you, what are we talking about? We are talking about a subject that is referred to as angelic majesties. And you have to take into account what the Bible tells us all about the different kinds of angels and those other creatures, not men. They have the imagery, they look like us, but they do different things and they're up there with God and they're around his throne and they serve him. One of the things that we need to take into account is the New Testament has a tremendous amount of information on this. In fact, the book of Revelation talks about all different kinds of angels doing things that are a part of God's administration around his throne. And the rabbis in Judaism have refrained from teaching this material. In fact, they block the teaching of this material to the Jewish people because here's what they've experienced in the past. There's like too much fascination on the part of the people about the angelic beings and what's going on with them than there is on God. They almost like forget the Lord and go chasing the things that they see. One of the great spiritual principles of spiritual maturity is you don't follow your eyes. You listen with your ears to what the Lord has said. That is the way you go. Well, as I said, the rabbis have concluded that there's too much of a temptation for the Jewish people, so they refrain from teaching these things. They don't want to discuss them. They don't want you to get interested in this subject. But John, 
gives us a lot more information. And let me go ahead and explain one other. There's a couple of different types of angels so that we have a, a basis to understand what's going on here. There are archangels. These are angels that have a little more authority than other angels. They're not the living creatures. The living creatures are dedicated to strictly being at the throne of God. But archangels are dispatched almost like generals of angels, if I could use that parallel. And we understand their position and where they're seated in the throne of God. So I'm going to position myself as though I'm sitting at the throne of God. To my right, that you would see to the left, is where the archangel Michael is supposed to be. He's the right hand, the strength of the Lord. He's considered to be the strongest of the archangels. At the moment, as we speak, Michael is not seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's here at the earth. And in fact, he's the protector of Israel and God's people and holding back evil. He's referred to, are you ready for this? He's called the restrainer. Now, there's a day coming when the great tribulation will take place that he will move back to heaven and we will lose the benefit of the restrainer of evil. And that's what part of the great tribulation is. And when he comes back to heaven, he now rallies the armies of heaven to kick Satan out of heaven and throw him to the earth. The great tribulation is all about Satan's been kicked out of heaven. He's now stuck down on the earth. And we who are on the earth without a restrainer, this is the reason why we're going to have a great tribulation. This will be a time of distress as the world's never seen before. Who's sitting in that seat right now at the moment? The one that Michael was supposed to The Messiah. The Messiah, after the resurrection, was told to be seated at the right hand of God and to remain there until he makes his enemies his footstool. Now, the enemies of him become the footstool when Satan is thrown out of heaven down to the earth. The earth is the footstool of God. And not only does Michael come up and kick him out, but the Messiah stands up from that seat. And at the moment that Satan is being cast to the earth, bad things are happening here. Good things are happening in heaven because the Messiah now begins to rule in heaven. There is no more Satan up there to take issue with him. He's now begins his rule in heaven and he's preparing, are you ready for this, to come to the earth and defeat his enemies. He's going to come back at the second coming, defeat them, and then he will have rule over the earth as well. There's a lot of dynamic that is going on between Michael, the archangel, the Messiah, and what are in the events that we have scheduled. So let me tell you about another angel we have. There's an archangel directly in front of the Lord. His name is Gabriel. And Gabriel is the one who always appears directly from God to anoint or appoint someone to do a task. Specifically, it was Gabriel who came to Mary to announce that she was going to have a son and what his name was going to be, that you should call him Yeshua, salvation, because he will save his people, and announced to her what God was doing. It is Gabriel who will be carrying the inkhorn that when the 144,000 are sealed, that he's the angel that goes from the throne from God to go out and seal the 144,000 in the events of the Great Tribulation. Gabriel has been used multiple times in biblical history for different things, and he has a tendency to also represent the Messiah in a lot of different things. Now, we have two other archangels, um, and we're not really, I'm not real positive what positions they're in, but their names are Raphael and Uriel. 
Raphael means God is my healer. Uriel means God is my light. And we know that one is either to the left or to the back, whichever. And if you really want to know a little bit more about that, you have to go to the, the books called the Apocrypha, and you can read a book called Tobias. And Tobias gives us some more detail about Uriel and Raphael. But let me just summarize by saying they are archangels in those positions. So where God sits... He has archangels on his four things. Underneath him are the four living creatures. He's sitting in the wings of the cherubim, and the seraphim are up above him singing. So this is a pretty glorious sight to see the throne of God. We have all of these different perspectives that come to us, and then occasionally throughout the Bible we'll hear some history about some angel doing something in particular and others that are supporting. Now, those are not the only angels that are involved. Those are the ones that have been shared with us and been revealed to us. Let me give you an example of another one. We have a particular angel. His name is Peniel. Peniel is called the angel of the face, and we believe that his position is forward of the throne and slightly down. So when a man comes before God and he looks up, he doesn't see the face of God. He sees the glory of the throne. But staring at him is the angel of the face. He is there to protect the man from dying. Because if the man were to see directly the face of God, like God has said, if you see my face, you will die. So Peniel is the one who is in the way that blocks. So when Moses went in and he saw God, he was actually in front of me. He was staring at Peniel, but he could see the glory of God all around And he would speak, and he could hear God speak, but Peniel was this angel who was there. By the way, Jacob, when he was getting ready to come into the land, and you remember he wrestled that night, and we think that he wrestled with the Messiah, but then afterwards he called that place where they wrestled, he called it Peniel. And he talked about, he said, I saw the face of God, Peniel. Now, apparently... The way this works is you cannot see the face of the Father, but you can see the face of the Messiah. And so he wrestled with him, but he knew it was the face of God. And so he called that place Peniel. The children of Israel say that when Moses came down off the mountain and that they had to put a veil in front of his face, which was the glory, he was reflecting the glory of God too much. And it was hurting people's eyes and they were blinding them and so forth, that they put a veil and here's was the expression. He spent too much time in front of Peniel. He was looking toward the face of God, but Peniel was there looking at him, emanating the glory of God that he could then live, and that's how he would see the face. Those are some of the elements of what we call the angelic majesties and how they play in and are a part of this. By the way, if you're going to be one of the 144,000 in the future Great Tribulation, you're going to get to meet Gabriel because Gabriel's the one that goes out and seals everybody with the name of God for the 144,000. And there's every expectation that we're going to see more of this kind of very fascinating, very interesting stuff, because we're coming to the time at the end of the ages, to the great tribulation, when God is going to be revealing himself in more powerful ways. And while these prophets have seen certain things that caused them to move and to do the things they did, We need to be sensitive to the fact that God has the sovereign power to come and use his appearance before us in the things taking place. It's going to take some powerful things to get us through this. Now, let me shift gears for a moment and tell you that these composite creatures that we're talking here, they also occur on the other side of the ledger. In fact, the Antichrist is pictured by the prophet John in the book of Revelation as being a beast 
that has the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, and the head of a lion. And we have such an imagery that does exist in the world today, just like the griffin. We can see pictures of a winged lion. Well, the beast is clearly pictured. It's called the heraldic beast. It's a very famous figure that exists within the royalty of the United Kingdom. And it's a calling card, so to speak, a name for them. Now, that particular beast, the lion, the leopard, and the bear, originates out of the history of the Holy Roman Empire. The emperors from France were the leopard, the emperors from Germany were the bear, and the emperors from England were the lion. And so the Holy Roman Empire, the composite of all of them, the different emperors, they created this beast, this heraldic beast for it. And that's where that originates from for us. Now, it's hard to envision quite this whole throne, particularly what Ezekiel's given us, what the wheels look like, the four living creatures, the throne of God above. I'm not sure I can take you any farther with this other than to say the following. Like Ezekiel, on the day he became a priest, if you had had a similar vision, it would definitely have gotten your attention. All of a sudden, you know that you're before God and God is getting ready to do something with you. So with that said, let's go to chapter 2. Then he said, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and sat on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. Their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate people, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Before I go any further, let's cover a couple of things. So God used the expression to Ezekiel and said, son of man. By the way, you get to the New Testament, what did Yeshua refer to himself as? The son of man. So what is the meaning of that? Well, I think what he's saying to Ezekiel, son of man, he's saying, you're just a man. You know, I'm God. I have the power. You don't have the power. You're frail. So I'm speaking to a frail person, the one who does not have the strength and the power. And he's basically saying, I'm going to give you the power to do this. You don't have it. In other words, if I were to send you to go do something, you don't have the strength to go do that. Well, this is a true account of every prophet that's called by God. And it's also true of every king that God calls and every priest that God has. We're men. We don't have the strength to do God's business, whatever it is, ruling the nation, being a voice for God, or rendering as a priest. The idea is this, and John the Baptist is the one who captures it the best as a priest. And he said, I have to be made weak so that he can become strong in me. And essentially, that's what's taking place here at the moment. God is saying to Ezekiel, I know you're just the son of a man, but I'm getting ready to use you in a very powerful way. Interestingly enough, a king when he's called, receives two spirits of God. He receives the spirit of strength and counsel so that his decisions are powerful with counsel and that he has great strength to lead. In the case of the priests, in fact, the first word in the book of Leviticus is Vayikra. And in Vayikra, that first word that's in there, they make, I believe it's the first letter, small in the Hebrew text. And the purpose for it is that you are small and weak, but God 
makes you greater. He exalts you into the position. Every person who gets a call of God, whether king, priest, prophet, whatever, one of the things they have to come to terms with, every good teacher, spiritual teacher, they have to come to terms with this business of God's not using me because of my strength. If that's what you're doing because you think you have the strength to do it, you're going to fail. And by the way, God didn't call you. The way God calls people is he comes to them and he actually lets them know they have to let themselves down. They have to become weak before him so God's strength can fill them up to do the task. And essentially, that's what the language is here. God is telling Ezekiel, you're just the son of a man. Now, let's go to the Messiah. Why was the term used for him? Because we know the Messiah is great. I mean, he's God. So why did he call himself the son of man? He says, because I'm making myself, I'm stepping down from my authority as God. I'm stepping down to the level to be a human man with you. You don't see the Messiah glorified riding on a white horse with fire coming out of his eyes and a big old sword. No, he comes down and he says, I'm the son of man. I'm making myself to be human amongst you. And for those who've studied Son of Man with Ezekiel, and they hear Yeshua's words, the Son of Man, we understand what the transference is. Paul, in the book of Philippians, talks about how the Messiah had to lower himself at seven different levels just to get down to be a human being and come to do the work of redemption. Why did the Messiah have to do that? Why did the Messiah come to the earth and lower himself to be a son of man? Well, there's a reason for it. He has to be an appropriate sacrifice for mankind. He has to offer himself at the equal level with them for payment, for redemption, according to the rules of the Torah. So he took on the form of a man, a human, so that he could make such a sacrifice for all of mankind. All right, so a little explanation there. At this point, God who calls Ezekiel, starts making a lot of comments about Israel itself, and it gets very tears. In fact, if you go through and read here, and I've read it many times, man, it's very disturbing to hear God speak in such a harsh way to his people, to give an account of what he has seen. So let's, at this moment, let's understand where Ezekiel's at and what has been happening. The nation of Israel has already split into two houses. Back in the land earlier, after Solomon, the nation of Israel split. There's a house of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, led by the tribe of Ephraim. There is a southern kingdom, led by the tribe of Judah, called the house of Judah. So you have the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And you're going to hear this definition by almost all of the prophets of God, because the nation has been split. And because of their misdeeds and because the northern kingdom rejected going to see God in Jerusalem, he rejected them and he cut them off and had the Assyrians come and take them captive. So when Ezekiel is here, he's already seen the misbehavior of the northern tribes and what God did with them, that he cast them into Assyrian captivity. Now, did the house of Judah learn their lesson and say, hey, we, let's not do what they did. Let's obey the Lord. No, they didn't learn their lesson either. And so God, through the prophets, had come to you. If you don't correct your behavior, Jeremiah said, I'm going to send you into Babylon in captivity for 70 years because you're not obeying the Lord. And guess what? They didn't repent. And lo and behold, here's Ezekiel. We're in the land of Babylon, and here's the punishment. And so we have the house of Judah in captivity. We have the house of Israel in captivity with the Syrians. And this is the dynamic. In other words, this is the punishment 
that God is putting on Israel for their failure to obey him and because they've been forgetting him and they won't obey, they won't repent. And he told them, Moses told them, other prophets told them, if you don't turn this around and start obeying the Lord, you're going to go into captivity. You will not get the benefit of this temple. You will not get the benefit of this land. I will kick you out of this land. And so that is where he's at. So as you can imagine, at this moment, both houses in captivity, God has a lot to say about why he has put them in captivity. And that's what a lot of this language that we're going to hear here is God's justification for why Israel is in captivity and being punished. Now, he goes on further, and this gets deeper into the book, about a worldwide captivity, about all of Israel being scattered in the land. And he has a lot to say about that. But here's the good news, and that's what I give you as the final thing. When this book gets done, Ezekiel is the one that's going to be explaining to us about how all of Israel is going to turn to the Lord and come back to the Lord and how the Lord is going to establish his kingdom. And by the way, the final chapters, one of the visions that Ezekiel's given, he says, I'm going to take you into the future. I'm going to show you the temple that will be in Jerusalem that ultimately you will serve in. And so he shows him the Ezekiel temple at the end of the book. These are very glorious things, very positive things. So that's our book transition is from judgments to redemption, as we see here. Lots of detail in the book. I'm excited about sharing some of these things with you. And as we get further in it, I think you're going to find the book is utterly amazing. I find the book amazing. I really do. And it's a joy for me to come and share about this book with you. And I'm hoping that it'll be as much encouragement to you as God has given encouragement to me. So that's our lesson for this Sabbath. We'll see you next Sabbath, and we'll continue our study here in Ezekiel, the visions of Ezekiel. Shalom.